Welcome to the Conversion Tracking Playbook, where we share how to overcome tracking challenges that e-commerce brands face today and real-world examples of transforming data into insights. Welcome back to another episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. I'm your host, Brad Redding, and I have a special guest today, Nevin, who's been, we've been good friends over email for quite a while, many years, and Nevin's honestly been, I can say this not a public, you've been the best feedback-wise in terms of podcasts, so you've, you've given some great feedback. Nevin, I'll let you give the background on what you do, but just to give context of what we'll be talking about today, Nevin actually emailed, I don't know, a month or two ago, and you said, hey, some of these topics are really complex. We're, I, I think one was Safari 16.5 in one of those episodes, but you're like, can we just have an episode where you just take it up a notch and just go high level? Because sometimes you go, you're go, you going too deep in the weeds and we just need to take a couple steps back. So Nevin is going to grill me with questions. He just said, he goes, I apologize. I didn't share the questions with you ahead of time. So I literally have no idea what he's going to ask. So it's going to be a surprise and hopefully I perform. But Nevin, thanks for taking time out and joining. Glad to have you on here. Yeah, of course. Question is, are you going to listen to your own voice? <laughs> are you going to listen to the episode? I think I, I definitely will. It's so weird being on the other side when you when you hear the intro. It's always like you're listening and now you're kind of being at, like on the podcast. <laughs> but I've heard that line so long. Welcome to the Conversion Tracking Playbook. playbook. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, just a little bit of background on me. I do e-com consulting, so I'll come in and run the e-com division for the brands that I work with in most cases, and then do some consulting work with brands I work with as well. And kind of a little background on what I was thinking when I sent that feedback. First of all, I didn't even know that my feedback was that taken into consideration, so appreciate that. But yeah, basically, a lot of the topics are super, super complex. And for me, when I learn, I like to have a full understanding of everything that's going on so that I can plug different aspects of things into the journey. So what I really like to do is just walk through a full customer journey with you from the time that someone enters the site for the first time to the multiple touch points and how tracking works at each point with each platform in different scenarios to the time that they basically convert. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. My, my, my kind of, of episode. Let's do it. Perfect. And I've got full faith that you'll be able to answer all the questions. <laughs> all right. Good thing this is being edited so I can cut out my ums and ah, uh, I'm not sure. So, <laughs> Yeah. So let's start at the very beginning. When someone enters onto Nike.com, for example, what exactly happens with cookies, with you know first party cookies, third party cookies, and just explain the concept of a cookie to me. And a lot of these questions I may know the answer to, but I'll try to still ask the question that everyone else can understand the the logic behind it. I'll steal the analogy that John used a couple episodes ago where we went, I think it was John, Jerrica and I around cookies explanation. He described it as a barcode. So cookie is like a barcode. You load up nike.com and you have a bunch of your marketing partners. So Facebook, analytics, Google ads, Klaviyo, display networks, whatever it might be. They're all placing their own barcode, their own individual barcode on you, the user. So they know who you are. So fundamentally, it's a piece of code that's dropped in onto your computer, right? That has information on, okay, this is the Facebook pixel. It is adding a user identifier to you so that it has user information on you. And then it also tracks your browser, right? So you are tagged. Like, are you as a human tagged? Is like your email address in there? Like, how is the user identification piece done through the cookie? It depends. Let's use Clavio. 
Klaviyo, so they have their JavaScript. So if you're just using the native Klaviyo integration and Klaviyo app, their app is going to inject their Klaviyo JavaScript, so their SDK. And that coming from that piece of JavaScript, that is setting one or more cookies within your browser. So think of it like code, essentially it's code that's living in your browser. It can be in cookies or it can be in local storage. Typically, it'll just say cookies. So the under, so Klaviyo's cookie is underscore KLA. So if you just, for those that are technical, you can just open up a browser, go to your cookie console under application. I'm trying to think between Chrome and Safari. Anyways, that cookie is encoded with information. So even though if you just look at the cookie value in the browser, it's going to be, you know, 20 a numeric, alphanumeric string that's like 20 digits long. So it's going to be ABC, one, two, three, X, Y, Z. But that has information encoded in that. So let's say you actually click an email. So you click an email from Klaviyo, you go to nike.com and in this cookie is set. That cookie has information encoded with it. Email is one of them because Klaviyo knows your email. I think Klaviyo also has referrer and they'll have a couple others. Like they might be number, number of sessions, the time you first visited. Every cookie is going to have different information that's encoded in it. And that is, that's really where the juice comes into it. Because if you come back to the site, if you come back to Nike later on tonight, if that Klaviyo cookie is still there and we have that, inf that information is encoded, now Klaviyo can recognize your activity because the Klaviyo cookies is encoded with your email. So now all of your activity, product views, add to carts, when they're sending an event to Klaviyo. So when you click add to cart, there's a Klaviyo add to cart event that's triggered that cookie is being essentially attached to that event. So that event has not only just the add to cart event name, it also has, here's Nevin's email, here's his original referrer, et cetera. So basically a cookie is just a ton of information about you and what you've done, right, on the site? Pretty much. Okay, got it. And then that information is just passed alongside every call that's made to the server when you're doing things on the site? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Got it. Makes sense. And then let's also talk about like first party and third party cookies. I'm assuming that first party cookies and third party cookies are exactly the same thing in terms of the way that they just have information. They're just set differently. One is through your domain and one is through a third party domain, right? Yeah. Yeah. So first party cookies, again, if, if you want to go more in depth, there's a whole episode that goes through this, but generally you have your JavaScript set cookies and then your server set cookies. I won't go too much in depth since that's covered in another episode, but in short, yeah, your first party cookie is going to be associated to your domain. So the Nike.com, which means in theory, what you'd expect is you come back to the site multiple times, multiple days, that cookie is still there, but that cookie is not going to follow you around to what you're doing, you know, checking out the weather or reading CNN.com. That's where third party cookies come in. So where a third party cookie comes in is where you go to cuts clothing and you look at a few products and a couple of the cookies that are being set, you have a dis display network, Critio, maybe a few others. Then you go over to weather.com. So since that cookie has been set, so that third-party cookie, this is in Chrome, since that third-party cookie essentially is, you are accepting as a user those third-party cookies to be set on your browser. When you go to weather.com and you're looking at the radar and you see a bunch of ads, you're gonna see cuts clothing ads. That is enabled and made possible through third-party cookies. Oh, so that can't be done through first-party cookies at all? No, because third-party cookies, th that's why the whole like cookieopolis where everyone's, Safari's already cut off third-party cookies. 
So it doesn't work. That that scenario doesn't work in Safari. It works in Chrome today, but Chrome said 2024, it's not going to work. But again, if Apple is essentially saying we are, we're basically deleting, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep it fairly high level, not out of the weeds, but Apple's saying, nope, sorry, we don't accept third-party cookies. So that activity of tracking you, what you did on Cuts Clothing, and then Cuts Clothing, being able to watch and listen or Google display, being able to watch and listen what you're doing on weather.com and say, oh, Nevin was just on Cuts Clothing. I'm going to show him this ad to bring him back to Cuts Clothing site. It's cross-site. It's like tracking your activity across different websites. That's what third-party cookies enables you to do. Okay, got it. And that's it. also what's going away. Got it. Sounds good. But say, for example, I give my email address on Cuts Clothing, and then I go to weather.com, and weather.com also has my email address. Now they can match these two pieces of data and using first-party cookies on both of those individual sites. Is that how this is going to move away from third-party cookies and go to first-party cookies? That's actually a really interesting question. I would remove cookies out of that. So the future could be where it's a logged in. So you are a logged in state. So if you are logged into Cuts Clothing with your email and you log in to weather.com and it's the same email, there could be some, okay, data sharing at outside of what well, basically it's got to happen outside of the browser, some sort of data sharing where now weather.com can, they can recognize, oh, you know, there's data sharing happening behind the scenes. We know that this email address was also a customer of cuts and show them ads at very, very, I mean, I'm just winging this. That doesn't really exist today. And just logging into both systems that won't really work. It doesn't work that way today through cookies, but that could be something in the future. So there still are retargeting ads on Facebook. How is Facebook able to do that? Um, given that third-party cookies are kind of already gone away. Are they just still leveraging third-party cookies and hoping and praying that as many people are, that are using third-party cookies or are they doing it some other way? Another good question. So it's a slightly different scenario. So with Facebook, and let's just talk, we're in Safari. You, you're on your iPhone. You see an ad for Cuts Clothing. You click on it. I know. Is that, what is that T-shirt? Is it cut? Is it a cut shirt? No, this is this is seen. See, okay, yeah. So we, I'll use cuts. Otherwise, I'll start confusing myself. Yeah, yeah, cuts is easier. So you click on a cuts ad on Facebook. You go to their site, their Facebook Pixel. So their Facebook Pixel executes, and their conversion API executes, where it's here's the quote unquote anonymous user ID, so the external ID that Facebook is using to recognize you and send that back to Facebook. So now when you are navigating through cut site, could potentially be outside of the whole Facebook browser or Facebook app, you're navigating cut site, but you're sending a bunch of the user parameter data back to Facebook. So external ID, phone number, location, IP address. If you opt into the 10% off coupon email, all the information that cuts is receiving, they're sending it back to Facebook through their pixel and conversion API. Facebook is receiving it saying, oh, we just got a, product view hit from external ID ABC123, but we don't have his email. So let's let's do a lookup. Like, did we serve anybody an, an ad that we can basically match? So can they match like, okay, Nevin saw this ad and he clicked on it. We got this data back from cuts and contained the click ID. There was a match. They're like, okay, this activity that cuts sent us matches the person that clicked or viewed this ad earlier this morning. Okay. Got it. So that's how they're doing the identity match. That makes total sense. They don't document it, but that's the only way it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And I'm assuming Google does something similar in that sense. Yeah. That's why click IDs are so popular. So the Facebook click ID, the G click ID, those are identifiers that they're using to connect activity to on the website to activity in their app. 
Got it. So now let's, let's quickly talk, let, now that you brought that up, let's talk about the click ID relative to the cookie. How do the two relate? It's just the click ID that's sent alongside the data with the cookie to back to Facebook? Depends. So if you click any link on Facebook, if you click a link from Facebook, Facebook is automatically appending an FB click ID to the URL. So if you were to click on one of your customer's ads, go to the site, you're going to see in the URL, it's going to be cutsclothing.com, query parameter, you know, Facebook click ID equals one, two, three, X, Y, Z. That particular query parameter or link sets an FBC cookie. So that query parameter is actually responsible for setting a specific cookie. And that's a third party cookie. That's still for technically it's first party. It's it's set in a first party context. So it's matching to the domain. So that cookie is now because once you navigate to a couple different pages, that query parameter is gone. You're not going to see it in the browser anymore. But your that click ID, so the FBC cookie exists in your browser and is going to follow you and persist in your browser until you clear it or the browser clears it for you. So how is Facebook able to set a first party cookie if a first party cookie is related to our domain? So how are they able to do that without having access to our DNS? Or is this a complete myth that a first party cookie can only be set by us? It's first party because they're setting the domain on the cookie. The domain on the cookie they're setting is that cookie is associated to cutsclothing.com, even though it's set by a quote unquote third party. Oh, okay. So all that first party means is that it sticks with you on that site and it doesn't go to track you on other sites. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Okay, that's the biggest difference between the two. Pretty much. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of technical nuance in that that's not probably not worth on this, but yeah, generally that's the easiest analogy for easiest definition of it. Okay, perfect. So now we talked a lot about the client side piece in terms of like how data is passed or how data is collected, which is, I'm assuming the only way to do that is through a cookie. Now let's talk about the server side piece. So how the data is transferred, right? So someone comes to your site, the data is only collected through a cookie. That cookie can be set through a server side or through a client side integration, right? Now, once it's set, it's transferred to Facebook through the server side versus through directly through the client side. Can you just talk talk about that difference? Yes. I'm going to go back to your original comment where you said client side, like the only way to track client side is through cookies. That's pretty much correct. There's technically other ways to do it. So you you don't like you just rely on local storage or session storage. So for for those that are listening, that might be like technical and say, well, that's not actually right. It's not just cookies. There's other ways to do it. Yeah. The comment section might blow up if you say that. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. There's going to be like tons of comments, like two comments that listen (laughs) from the three listeners. But yeah, so generally speaking, yeah, historically, that's how cookies have have worked client side. So let me just restate the question. Your your question is how, how does essentially identity or matching that user activity back to the event, like an activity on the Facebook app, how is that done server side and how's it, how does it differ from client side? Is that the question? Yeah. Well, how does the, how does, well, let's just talk about it all, right? How does setting the cookie different client side versus server side? And then how is data transferred on client side versus server side? And how, where's the overlap? Yeah. So client side data transfers through the browser. Yeah. So that's just, it's running through the browser. You reload the page and it's, it's happening through there. There's there like there's some apps called like Party Town and Cloudflare and others where you'll technically it's still part of the browser, but it it's think about like a wrapper around the browser where they're trying to basically move some of the activity out of just being synchronous in the browser. But again, that's kind of a, a footnote. Again, it's more it's a there are other ways than just like a job piece of JavaScript that's running in the browser. 
And these are just just for site speed optimization, right? Generally, yeah. So if you think about the Yoda, Edge Mesh, so th those are like the two probably most common site speed accelerators that are using some sort of Cloudflare or accelerator. Server side, the, the data transfer server side, let's start at page view. So you mentioned page view starting at user landing on the site. I'll just use Shopify. So Shopify right now does not have webhooks for a page view event. Technically, they have webhooks that you can infer that it's a page view, but generally speaking, if you to, if you look at the webhooks available in Shopify, there's no page view webhook. So in order to process a page view event server side, you need to have essentially a proxy, a way to get a page view from within the browser, send that ideally within your own domain. So within the context of your own first party domain, so within cutsclothing.com, you wanna grab that page view event, store it in a server, and then that server outside of the browser will send the page view event to Facebook. So it'll send the page view event, so the URL, the IP address, whatever information that you're capturing with that, that actual event is sent from one server to another server. So it's literally outside the browser. But it's still collected through a cookie and an event in the browser, right? Or no? It's not done through a cookie per se. It is done, so let's let's take the Elevar app. So the Elevar app, there's a, there's a functionality in Shopify called the app proxy. So if you were to go to any Elevar customer site and just go to the network tab, do a page view reload, filter by Elevar, you're gonna see cutsclothing.com and there'll be Elevar lives in the subfolder. And then you would see query parameters. That's basically taking the page view and a bunch of data associated with the page view and routing it to us. But it's happening at the cutsclothing.com domain. So ad, like an ad blocker. So ad blockers typically work by domain. They're not going to block a cutsclothing.com domain. So that is still coming through the browser, but it's being sent off to a server within your quote unquote first party context. This is how GTM server side containers work. That's historically, if you had a subdomain, you'd even want your, your GTM. That was a big thing I was pushing years ago is to have your GTM proxy enabled. So you're collecting data within your own subdomain. The Cloudflare examples I mentioned, typically those are gonna live on a subdomain. So you're still collecting some data through the browser, but you're sending it to yourself. So it's like, I don't know, it, think about a house. We're living in a house, it's you're going from the first floor to the second floor, second floor to the first floor. You're still in the same house. Okay, so I know you had mentioned something about a Y pick, a Shopify Y pixel. Is that, am I getting the name right? Yeah, so there's a bunch of cookies that live, like that Shopify will expose. So if you, the way that there's a session enrichment video that I have on site. So Shopify has, they are the server. So Shopify is the host server. So that's where they can set server set cookies where they're not going to be, as of today, as of June 23rd, whatever it is, it could, could change in the future. Yeah. But as of today, Safari and browsers that are utilizing WebKit, they respect, they are respecting the wishes of a server set cookie. So that is the command coming from the server. So if Shopify says, all these cookies that we're setting, we want the expiration to be 12 months from now. And as of today, it doesn't matter if you're on Safari 14, 15, 16, 17, that expiration date is going to persist because Safari is, is trusting and, and respecting that server set cookie. So if you're outside of the Shopify, Shopify ecosystem, you could also have cookies that your own server is setting and it'll be a server set cookie which you can use as an identifier. 
Okay, got it. And then in order to track all this information in Google Analytics, for example, right, let's assume that the Elevar app is installed because that, I guess, would be its best practice, right? So let's say that I go to a website with the Elevar app installed and I'm trying to get this information about what I'm doing on the site to GA, right? It's still a cookie that's collecting it or it's the server that's sending the data through whatever mechanism you said Elevar uses. Which one is it? Yeah, so there's a fork in the road. If you are using Google Tag Manager for all of you, all of your site-wide events, so page view event, product view event, et cetera, Google Tag Manager web container is running client-side. That is utilizing the GA cookie. So the underscore GA is a cookie that is set by the Google Analytics JavaScript. And that is what is, is used as a quote-unquote identifier. So inside of user universal analytics, there's a user explorer report on the left. And typically, if you look at that, you're going to see a bunch of, again, numeric, all numeric strings, like one, two, three, dot, five, six, seven. That's the cookie. That's That comes from the GA cookie. So that is where you're going to see your, that's why if you ever look at a, the time to purchase report, it's always like, oh, 99% of people purchase within 24 hours to come to the site. That's just because it, Google using the GA cookie, is, it's just, it's gotten worse over time where that cookie, your cookie is being reset. So you come back three days apart, you have a new GA cookie because it's been reset in Safari. If you are running server side, so the other fork in the road, if you're in the context of Elevar, if you're running everything server side through Universal Analytics, then... Sorry, so wait, let's just backtrack a little bit. The first scenario you said is that without Elevar? That's with, or, yeah, with or without Elevar. If it's in Google Tag Manager in a web container, unless you override the user ID that you want to, every page to use as the conical ID, it is going to use the GA cookie unless you override that. But let's just talk about how that would be set up in order to have it that way. And because that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem like it's best practice to me, right? Or am I wrong there? Let's I'll actually ignore universal analytics. I'll just focus on GA4. So GA4, there's a couple different user IDs. And generally speaking, you'd want to leverage the, that's where it's best practice. I'm biased. So I would say leverage the user ID that Elevar is utilizing, which we're getting from Shopify, because the goal for us in our integration is to extend the ability for GA4 to recognize that user coming back five times over five weeks or whatever the time frame is. So that's where I would say for our customers, the recommendation would be utilize the user ID, which is it's set, like it's set in the, the download. If you download from our app, it's we're setting that for you. In general, though, it's I would say as an industry best practice, it's probably just to rely on the GA cookie, like the default setting, like don't override it. Okay, got it. But then using the default cookie through GA means that you're using a third-party cookie. No, it's still a first-party cookie. Still a first-party cookie. Okay, sounds good. So the data is still being collected as a first-party cookie and as if there's no problems there. Yeah, it's still fine. And you could technically run... Yeah, I won't. I'm, I'm going to go too, too far in the weeds on that one. But yes, first-party cookie. It's set by Google. It's Yeah, it starts with G underscore. And you're, well, Google has a bunch of cookies, but yeah, it, it is set as a first-party cookie. Okay, perfect. So then let's just quickly talk about then the benefits of using Elevar server-side integration. What more data do you get by doing that? So two, like the our pitch one to two years ago was all about, okay, well, I, let me turn around, let me back up with the pain points that our customers were having. One, their tracking was breaking without them knowing, so they wouldn't know for a week or two when a pixel is broken. And two, they were missing five, 10, 15, 20% of conversions 
in either Google Analytics, which was a pain point for them, or in Facebook Events Manager, which would mean ROAS is, is lower, or Google Ads, which same thing, it's going to impact the ability to scale. So that's where... Because of a lack of server-side integration, right? The lack of conversion events making it to Facebook and Google Ads. So if you just, there's two different problems or two different pain points. So we have a, we have set, some set of customers where they only care about Google Analytics being 100% accurate. They want 100% of conversions in GA because they have a whole process that they're going, going through and assigning attribution to each conversion to help them make decisions where to spend money. So that's like, we want 100% of conversions in GA. You can only, you can literally only accomplish that through server-side tracking. It's not going to happen in the client. Because of ad blockers, because those pages not loading, pixels not firing, whatever it might be, right? Yeah, and today, purchases happening outside the site. Oh, okay. So it could be you have your Instagram app or, or TikTok shop or Facebook shop or whatever it might, it might be. There's always, always different use cases where you could be selling outside your quote-unquote happy path online store. When it comes to Facebook and Google ads or affiliates like Impact Radius, whatever it might be, when they are missing 10, 15, 20% of their purchase events, that is going to directly impact A, you're going to have a lower return on ad spend in Facebook. So if you have a lower ROAS, you're probably not going to spend money. You're going to move it elsewhere or just cut budget. Two, it's going to, it will neg negatively impact your CPMs and CPCs. Part of the algorithm, like the bidding algorithm that Facebook uses is the estimated action rate. The estimated action rate is as part of the formula of Basically, your the content plus estimated action rate plus your bid is going to give you the rank. Estimated action rate is from the amount of historical data Facebook has is on your site activity to say, okay, we got a ton of conversion events coming from them. You know, we're going to give them estimated action rate of X, whatever that is. Okay, got it. That makes sense. So server, I, sorry, I just continues. So that was like the one to two year ago. Today, the benefits of server side tracking is to me that's table stakes. So ensuring that each channel gets 100% of conversions sent to them, that's table stakes. I like that shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a huge value add. It should just be an expectation. Today where server-side tracking is coming in is, okay, how can we extend the ability to recognize returning users? Because there are all these headwinds that we're facing where essentially if you are on Safari, which for most brands, 50% plus traffic, they're on a Safari device or a WebKit device, you can't recognize them past 24 hours, which will impact your Klaviyo flows. It'll impact your Facebook advertising. It'll impact everything. It'll impact the ability to recognize affiliates, like paying affiliates out. So being able to extend that, that's also where server-side tracking and identity management comes in and, and couples with server-side tracking. That's really, and that's not just an Elevar thing that we're doing. There, you see multiple companies out there doing this, but that's where server-side tracking is is having to go because there's so much friction being placed on the ability to recognize who a user is. Because you could, if you sent 100% of conversions to Google Analytics, but it had almost no user identity or session or attribution data, then you'd have 100% of conversions attributed to direct none. That's not gonna help you make decisions. So that's where this ability to recognize users, recognize attribution, where they came from, and send that to channels, that is going to help maintain performance. So this is that new product that you guys just released with Klaviyo, right? Yeah, so we've been using that and phenomenal. Like we've been getting a bunch of additional ad to carts, browse abandonments, everything. But can we walk through how exactly that works, like the technical side of it? Yeah. 
So at the end of the day, that's a Klaviyo server-side destination for us. So we have one with Attentive that we're rolling out and, and others, others, but it's built on the back of our session enrichment, which is an extension of our overall server-side product. So basically think about like a diamond. So think about diamond shape. So you have a diamond where, okay, we're going to look at a, f a few different ways to see if we can recognize a user. And by the way, I'll, I'll add a caveat here. Consent mode, GDPR, the ability to turn off, like all those things, the ability to delete a customer, that's things that you, we either support it today or they'll be, by the time you listen to it, they'll probably already be live. But so we treat session enrichment just like a consent mode integration. So we, if session enrichment needs to be GDPR compliant and categorized an, as an ad personalization category, that's part of the, the whole security side. So with that out of the way, the triangle. So we're going to look at, okay, a Shopify user ID. We're going to look at an ID from the WebPixel API or the Pixel API. We're going to look at a couple different areas of points to try to recognize a user. So I'll just start at the beginning. You come to the site, you're anonymous. You haven't, you haven't entered an email into a pop-up. You get a user ID, you get that barcode stamped on you. In our case, you're getting a couple different barcodes, a couple different user IDs from different places. Like Facebook and Goldclavio. It's more just user, like different way, different IDs from different sources. So an ID from our own, uh, we have our own user identifier that we create. Okay. Shopify has a user identifier that they create. There's a, you know, the, the pixel API session ID. So those are identifiers that we are applying to you. Again, we don't know who you are. It's just, it's just anonymous IDs. But then at the same time, even Facebook and Google are adding pixels and setting an ID for you, right? Actually, no. I mean, Facebook is, but. I'll push those to the side because it doesn't really, that doesn't pertain to the session enrichment. Again, you, you get a bunch of IDs and as you progress through the, your sites, so let's say you opt into a pop-up, so you're 10% off. It's like, oh, well, we got, we know his email. Here's Nevin's email. Here's his location. Here's whatever. If you logged in and created an account. So any, any different things that you're, you're doing on site that's being added to your profile. Offsite doesn't live in the browser. So when you come back, when you come back to the site a week later, we're going to look at like your visit and recognize like, oh, okay, do we know this person? But they didn't enter their email because they're on their phone or whatever. They're, they're, it's like essentially a new, a new user, but we're going to do a lookup on all those different ways that we are trying to ID an individual user. And when we find a match, we, so we go through and say, oh, ID 123. Oh, we have an ID 123 from a week ago. That's a match. So now let's basically take the information that was stored from that visit a week ago, the email you entered in a pop-up, the location data, and we're now any hits, so the Facebook conversion API hits or the hits going to, to Klaviyo, we are now sending with an email address. So this is basically what those really expensive CDPs do, right? Part of the, like the identity management, yeah, that's exactly what would a CD, not exactly, but yes, generally speaking, yes. Part of it. Yeah. Okay, makes total sense. And then it basically sends that data back to Facebook, Klaviyo, all the server-side destinations so that Facebook and Klaviyo and Google all have this enriched data about that individual, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay, got it, sounds good. So at the end of the day, we have two, just going back to the direct none. So there's two jobs that I've probably said a thousand, 10,000 times in my life. The two jobs that we have, that Elevar has to do, number one, ensure that every channel receives 100% of event conversions. Conversion can be a purchase or an add to cart. But that's number one goal. Number two is ensure that each event has the maximum amount of customer attribution, session, product order data. 
So we don't have 100% of conversions going to Clavio or Gucci A that are worthless. That you, you can't you can't utilize them because they have no no user or other property attributes associated with it. Got it. Sounds good. And then everything would the attribution data would all be basically visualized in GA. Yeah, visualized in GA. You should see it in Facebook. So you should, this is where you should see your match scores should go up. So if you go if you go look at your match scores for events, it might be good, 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 good. If you have this type of technology in place, whether it's LOR or someone else, it should be great, 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 great. Perfect. Again, that's like the so what, who cares? What does that mean? You should see that come into CPMs lower, CPCs lower, your ROAS improves. So you, the the end result is to actually improve performance and improve the ability to scale. So you don't hit a ceiling. So you don't hit like a, a budget ceiling where you're trying to spend $10,000 a day, but Facebook can't because they can't find more people. Okay, cool. So let's talk about attribution as well, because I think that's the number one concern by 99% of marketers, right? Like where what is effective and what's not so i think utms is something that we haven't talked about just yet so do you want to quickly do a brief generalization about how they work and how they tie into all this i would love to hear your explanation your definition of utms so that's where i've kind of got a little bit of question mark now my understanding is that when a utm is assigned when when you come in with a utm assigned that data is then passed back with the additional user data that's part of that cookie to GA? Yeah, so I wouldn't, yeah, UTMs, I wouldn't directly connect to a cookie. So UTM parameters, generally speaking, UTM parameters are, are it's a Google Analytics link. So you go to your, you build your UTM source equals Facebook, UTM medium equals paid social, UTM campaign equals whatever, it's probably a dynamic campaign name or ad set name, but that's most of the time that is just for Google Analytics. So Facebook and Google, or sorry, Facebook, TikTok, all these platforms don't really care about UTMs? No, they're not. No, you're not, you aren't going into Facebook. I mean, yeah, today you aren't going into Facebook and looking at their own attribution report by like utilizing UTMs. There are some tools that instead of giving you their own unique query parameter, so think about attribution tools out there like Northbeam, Triple Well, Rockerbox, et cetera. Some of them will give you custom custom query parameters, but some will just listen for UTMs and that's what they use. Okay, got it. Sounds good. But then those UTMs are still passed back to GA with that cookie data, right? Mm-hmm. And that user data? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So basically when a UTM is, someone comes into a site with a UTM, that data is basically added to that identity profile, identity graph, and then sent back to, GA. So as long as there's an identity with that person, that UTM data is sent back with every single event that's set, right? Yeah. Essentially, Google Analytics is looking for UTMs. So if UTMs exist, then they're, again, essentially attaching it to like, oh, UTMs, we're going to display this in these various reports. So it's part of like the built-in function of Google Analytics and the way it works. Facebook isn't using, isn't looking for UTMs and using that as part of any attribution that they're doing. It's a very, it's a very Google Analytics specific type of feature. Okay, got it. And so all this raw data sits on the LVAR server, right? Yes. Okay, perfect. Is it on your roadmap to ever expose that raw data to us so that we can make queries using SQL and build our own custom visualization of the data? Yeah, you can get it today. So, I mean, you, you can get some of it. So inside of, of LVAR, on the left nav, there'll be what's called an attribution feed, which to us, it's probably not the best name looking back at it because it's not, you're not going there for attribution visualizations, but it's the, if I back up to a year ago, why did we add that in? 
a question we would get would be, well, how can I trust that the data I'm seeing in Google Analytics that Elevar is responsible for collecting and sending, how can I trust that that's accurate? So we just said, well, we'll just show you everything that we're sending and everything that we have. So within that attribution feed, we show first touch UTMs, last touch UTMs, click IDs. There's a bunch of data, a bunch of dimensions that you can just add in there and export. Is there a way to like automatically export all that data to something like BigQuery so that we can visualize it? Not today, but we've been getting a lot of requests for that. Okay, cool. Because that's basically what tools like Segment do, right? Part of what they do. The dumping the data to BigQuery? Dumping the data to any... I mean, I know Segment just dumps the data to any destination, right? And BigQuery is just one of those. Yeah, yeah. But I think BigQuery is kind of the big one because then data analysts who want to look at raw data opposed to data that's that's limited by the visualization tools that within GA, they're able to build custom reports, right? Yeah, so we, we have a pilot with a few customers where we're essentially linking up. So they have BigQuery and we've just linked up BigQuery like our BigQuery tables for their website to them. So that's something we've we've explored. We have others that they actually use our order notes. So they'll use all of our order notes on an order and because they have automations built in, like just pulling all Shopify order data. So they'll use that to, to pull into their own reporting. That has a bunch of quote unquote attribution data. This is where that name gets a little bit fuzzy where it is technically attribution data, but it doesn't mean that we're attribution visualization tool, but it has. Yeah, your, but it doesn't have everything, right? Like it only has like, I think it's, is it last touch that it's? it's yeah, the order notes if you're the last touch, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like if someone wants to see the full journey, it's tough for them to see it through the order notes. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, one more question. This is kind of, I think we've also touched up on this as well, but I guess this kind of wraps into the identity graph piece, but how does like other elements of tracking like IP address, location, things like that play into tracking as a whole through GA? Is that it's all through that same server side piece, right? So just to restate the question, how how does IP address user agents, others, how does that relate to Google Analytics reporting? Is that the question? Yeah, like how how are like right now the traditional method of tracking is Someone comes in through UTMs and basically the person that's coming in tells, essentially tells you through UTMs where they're coming from, right? But there's other ways to identify a person that's more creepy, I guess, through IP addresses, through location data, browser data, all that kind of stuff when those UTMs may not exist or when they may not be reliable. Other than the session enrichment piece that we spoke about already, is there any other way that that information plays into tracking an attribution? So that is, that's why the primary reason why there's such a crackdown on JavaScript running in the checkout, part of checkout extensibility with Shopify is moving to the WebPixel API and other Pixel APIs. But yeah, in general, Google Analytics, JavaScript and others, that it's this is where you get the implicit versus explicit data collection. Client-side tracking is very implicit. You put a piece of JavaScript and that JavaScript is going to pull varying amounts of information from the browser, from your request headers, including IP address, user agents, your device dimension. So like your screen resolution, your, there's all kinds of information that's going to grab from the browser and it does it automatically without you telling it. Server-side tracking is explicit. So the only data that you as a brand are sending to Facebook is what you want to send to Facebook. If you don't want to send IP address or, or others, you don't send it. But as a brand, does Shopify allow us to get all that like ultra granular detail, like screen resolution and things like that? If you want to outside of checkout, yes. Okay, but through checkout, it's tough. 
checkout extensibility is very, very different than just the online storefront. And it's not really, it's not like it's a Shopify allowing you to do this or not. It's just, just like the way the web works. It's just very normal. It's you have access to the DOM and you can, so you can scrape different information on that from the browser. So the way, so ser in server-side implementations, so just talk Elevar, in our server-side integrations for GA or GA4, it, it is very specific. There are very, very specific cookie values that we need to send. There are very specific parameters. So if you go to any of any of their, uh, their dev docs, they'll show like, we need these parameters, we need IP address, we need user agent. Facebook Cappy, same thing. We need IP address, we need user agent with every hit because that they're going to use that to infer different reports. So user agent, if you want to go look at your device data report in Google Analytics, you you can't Google Analytics can't show that if it doesn't have the user agent string sent to it for that hit. And what that is, that's like your Safari. So if you want to look at mobile versus desktop, Chrome versus Safari, what versions of Safari, that's where those reports ultimately come from. Okay, perfect. Sounds good. I think those are all the questions I have. The I had one kind of like bonus question. I've heard about a bunch of tools out there that do like these crazy things like they like they'll track the way you type or the way that you move your cursor on a screen and try to use identity graphs to identify people that way. What are your thoughts on those types of tools and like associating attribution data based off of matching those IDs? Does it work? Is it worth investing in tools like that? Is it all very marginal in terms of the increased benefits you get from it? What do you think? Is that the future of identity graphs or identity or finding identities on of people? My opinion, I don't think so. I think in 10 years, it'll be very common for, probably not even 10 years, but let's say 10 years. I think it's very common that when you load up your browser, you are logging in. Like everything is a logged in state. So it's each website, if we take the United States, right now, each state, it's up to them to come up with their own. Do we want to have a CCPA type of regulation or do we want something else? I think there's you know five, six, seven new states that are rolling out some of their own, but it's not every single state. So if, again, as a brand, you it's up to you to figure out like, oh, someone's in California. We got to show them this pop-up and do this and give them this form and do all that. But if they're in New York, no, we don't need to get consent or do anything. I think that'll become more similar to like what we're talking about here will be more to what Europe has done with GDPR, where it's governs every country, every like every site operating. So what I mean by that is, you know, this is this is my opinion. I've, yeah, yeah. This this was a opinion question. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it's much more of a again, you you fire up your browser or you just have settings that persist in your phone or wherever that says, here's my tracking settings and here are the sites that I want to log into. And and it lives there. It lives at the operating system or the browser, not at the individual site. Okay. Because you could go to one site where they're trying to be very privacy forward or legal. So you're going to go in and opt in and choose your preferences, et cetera. But then if you go to another site, they may choose, ah, screw it. We're just going to wait until we get our hand slapped. So we're not going to have all that. So you as a consumer, like you you have two very different experiences because those two brands have chosen to operate in a different manner. I think that decision will be removed from brands in the future. Okay. I think it'll be, and the easiest example is the iOS. The, do, you, do you opt in app tracking? Exactly. Makes total sense. Well, I think those are all the questions that I had. All right. Well, Nevin, thank you. This is, I'll be curious if you like this or if you didn't like this episode, shoot me an email, Brad at Gadelvar. Let me know how I did in the hot seat. 
And please let me know how that feedback comes back because I'm curious too. <laughs> Will do. All right, Nevin, how can people get in touch with you? Email is best, nevin at datadish.io. Awesome. All righty. See you next time. Did you enjoy today's episode? If so, we release two new episodes per week. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else that you subscribe and listen to your podcasts. I also have a favor to ask. I'd really appreciate if you could leave a comment or a review so I can learn exactly how to improve future episodes for you. And last but not least, if you want to connect with me, find me on LinkedIn by searching Brad Redding at Elevar. That's E-L-E-V-A-R. Or you can DM me on Twitter. My handle is I am Brad Redding. I look forward to connecting with you. Thanks again. Thanks again.